Good morning. Good to see everybody. I wanted to open with uh, this illustration. I was going to say, imagine you were crossing the ocean in a boat, and the boat sunk, but nobody is, is going across the ocean in a boat anymore. Everybody is flying. So imagine you were flying, and your plane crashed in the ocean, because that's probably slightly more realistic these days. And they somehow, miraculously, you were safe, meaning you survived the crash landing into the ocean. But uh, obviously, the plane is falling in pieces, and you managed to uh, jump off, and you're now treading water in the middle of the Pacific. Is that a good place to be, Howard? No. <laughs> Probably not. And um, yet, uh, by God's grace, you didn't just survive the uh, crash landing so that you're still alive, treading water, but um, somebody is actually happens to be close enough to get to you in time and uh, toss you, uh, as I understand, this is called the life preserver. And, uh, you know, you'll probably, you know, can barely see anything as, you know, you've been in the water and you know you somehow are able to see that and catch it and then the person is starting to pull you up out of the water now which boat would you like to find doing that to you do you want to find this one pulling you up or the next one all right why why would you go for option number two which i assume all of us would it's a navy all right we all like the navy it's seaworthy, right? It's something that probably could get you back to land safely. I don't know if you depend on the other one, if somehow that actually made it to the center of the Pacific to actually get you back to, to land. And uh, that's what we want to think about today, because salvation is a lot like this picture of somebody throwing you this life preserver, right? Here we are, we're sinking uh, in, in the ocean of sin, and death and the judgment of God is what we deserve. And here Christ comes and he's throwing us this life preserver. That's our salvation. We lay hold of it. And he's the one who's pulling us into safety. And we want to think, if you would, about the seaworthiness of the Lord Jesus today. Now, <clears throat> I was thinking a good place to start is what we said are the key verses in uh, the book of Hebrews. I think, I think last time I said key verse, but it's really it's two verses. It's hard to separate them. And uh, these two verses, if you were here last week, you'd remember maybe what was the key verse I, I pointed out at the time. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We'll have them displayed, but of course, if you have your own Bible, you could read from your own Bible. But I was thinking of doing something uh, extra. Uh, a few years ago, we had a series of messages in Yosemite. Everybody, anybody here remember Joe Reese preaching about these two verses? Yeah, he preached a whole week, six messages on just these two verses in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11, verses 1 and 2. And he encouraged us at the time to memorize these two verses. He said, you have all week to do it, right? Two verses in, you know, one week should be doable. And um, I confess I didn't memorize those two verses that week. <laughs> but I thought we can do better. I keep talking about the value of memorizing God's word. And I thought, let's be really practical, help you guys out. We'll go ahead and we'll read these verses together. 
And God willing, every time uh, we, we, we go through a message in the book of Hebrews, as we go through the book of Hebrews, we'll go ahead and we'll say it out loud together. So here it is, a very practical help to memorizing the Word of God. We'll have the verses up. This is the New King James. And I'd like everybody to read it together. I know we don't often do it at Calvary Bible Chapel. I have what we call responsive reading. This is not exactly responsive reading because I'll read it right along with you. Okay, so together, if you please, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I know it's not easy to read it together. We each have our own pace. Um, but uh, this will, will be a help. If you do it every day, I guarantee you'll have these verses memorized. Uh, unless the Lord comes first, which we will all accept, okay? Um, okay, so the they thought, main thought I have here, as we read these two verses, uh, the goal that the author had, and really the goal God has for us in the book of Hebrews, is to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And he's talking about the Christian race. God wants us to live by faith and to follow him. And he calls it a race because we're looking for that finish line, which is being in the arms of Jesus. And in the meantime, we are to run the race. We continue to live this life, continue to do the things God wants us to do. And like a race, uh, it can be difficult. We can become discouraged through different things. Uh, we may get tired serving the Lord and seeing uh, not a lot of fruit. We might, uh, as, the, as the, um, the audience to which he was writing to the Hebrews, we may have gone through some tribulation, some difficulties in our life. Uh, in their case, it was uh, persecution that they were experiencing. We may experience a physical ailment. Uh, we may uh, suffer the loss of loved ones. There could be, there's lots of things in this life that could discourage us, and in the Christian race, and, and so he gives us the key to running the Christian race, is, says, he says, looking unto Jesus. I don't know if you noticed our two hymns this morning, which I did not pick. Both really pointed the same thing, you know, uh, I think, was it, uh, stayed upon Jehovah, right? Hearts are fully blessed, is that the right word? And the other one is, be thou my vision. Right? We want to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus, and that is the key to running the Christian race. Now, it's not just the book of Hebrews. It's not just our hymns that say that. Jesus said so himself. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have tribulation. It's not a maybe. <laughs> It's not there's a possibility there may be some tribulation in this world. He says you will have tribulation. We shouldn't be surprised if we come across hard time when Jesus said it will happen. And yet he says he wants us to have good cheer. 
He wants us to have peace. And how is that possible? He says, in me. In me you may have. So we're not going to have it on our own, right? I cannot in myself have peace. But in him I can. Right? I need my eyes on him. Paul said something similar to the Colossians. He said, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So first of all, we have here a confirmation. We have to keep our eyes on him if we want to have an encouraged life here. So there's no other way to live the Christian life with encouragement but keeping your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Second, he brings here another reason which I wanted to think about as we look at our text this morning. And uh, that's the uh, theological word would be identification. We're identified with Christ. We're united uh, with Christ. He says Christ is our life. We died, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. And I was trying to think of an illustration to that because it's something that's, I think, hard for our minds to grasp. grasp. And uh, so in this picture, let's say you were in the ocean and uh, you know, somebody is, is throwing the life preserver. Let's say that happens to be the captain of that aircraft carrier. Right? He, threw, he literally was the one who threw the life preserver to you. You hold on to it. And, uh, and uh, these days, I, they probably have like a clip or something. You clip to yourself. I mean, they, they're more advanced. We're not going to depend on you anymore. You know, we have, there's all this gear to keep you connected so you don't fall off. And uh, let's say he also clips it to himself for safety. Right? As he's pulling you up. And then after he pulls you up on top of the aircraft carrier, what do you know? The clip doesn't work anymore. You're connected to him, right? You're, 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 you can't unhook yours, and he can't unhook his. What's going to happen now? Well, everywhere that captain of the aircraft carrier ship goes, you will go too. When, he, when he's eating that night with his officers, there you will be with his officers. Uh, if, uh, you know, the President of the United States comes and wants to give him a medal of honor for rescuing you, there you will be with him. Right? Because you're connected, you're attached. In the same way, we are attached to Christ. Right? This bond of salvation is undetachable. Right? It's always connected to him, it's always connected to you, and it's unbreakable. Right? You will be with Christ. We are connected to him now. We can't see him. Right now it's by faith. One day he'll be with the seeing of the eyes. But everything that Christ... Uh, where Christ is, is a place where you are at also. That's why it says that we died with Christ and we rose with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places because of that connection. Okay, so as we go through this passage, we'll try to keep that in mind too. First of all, we want to appreciate the uh, seaworthiness of the Lord Jesus, right? But we also want to appreciate our blessing of being connected to him. Okay? With that, we'll start the passage for today. And I'll read it in sections so we don't get lost in it. There's, there's a lot of verses. Uh, again, pulling out of the Old Testament, we mentioned it last time that the author, since he is writing to a Hebrew audience, they're familiar with the Old Testament, he's choosing to use the Old Testament as a means of showing the seaworthiness of Christ. 
So there'll be a lot of Old Testament verses, but we'll take them a little bit at a time. First, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is the Lord Jesus. It says that he has become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, why is it comparing him to angels? And this is my, my guess of why that is. Um, it's clear that from the book that they're, they're very interested in angels. We'll see angels come up several times as we go through the book of Hebrews. Why would they be so focused on angels? And I think it has to do with the fact that angels in the Old Testament were associated with deliverance of the people of God. Often the people of God found themselves in some level of trouble, and often God would use angels as a means of, of saving them. Let me give you some examples. Um, first of all, there is, uh, well, so there's many occurrences. Here, here's just the ones that I have. Uh, when Israel was going to enter the land, there they were facing these cities that were fortified up to heaven and giants that looked at them down as grasshoppers, and they were rather fearful as they were about to enter the land. And God sends the angel of the Lord. Now, we know that the angel of the Lord, or we believe the angel of the Lord is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, but he's still referred to as an angel in the Old Testament. He comes, and he takes command. You know, Joshua says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And he says, no, I've come to take control. <laughs> right? And so he's the one who really led Israel to victories. It wasn't the greatness of Joshua that led Israel to conquer the land. It was the angel of the Lord. Right, that gave him the victory. Then we have, uh, in the period of Judges, we have a couple of appearances. Remember, Israel was supposed to take possession of the land, but they didn't do so well, and often their enemies were possessing the land instead of them, and they were subjugated. And uh, one of the times angels appear was to Gideon. Remember, there was Gideon, this mighty man of valor, you know, hiding from the enemy, as he is threshing his, his wheat in a wine press, not where you're supposed to be threshing wheat. And uh, an angel shows up and says, you know, you mighty man of God, you know, go and, and save Israel with this might of yours. And the angel encourages him and really leads him to, to victory over the Midianites, the enemies of Israel at the time. Uh, similarly, an angel appears to Manoah and his wife. If you remember, they were Samson's parents. And he told them Samson was going to be born, and God was going to use Samson to deliver Israel from their enemies. Uh, <clears throat> in the days of the prophets, we have a story with Elisha being surrounded by the Syrian army. And uh, his, his servant is very afraid, and Elisha says, God opened the eyes of the servant, because, you know, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And God just gives a glimpse to this servant, and he sees that the whole mountain is surrounded by chariots of fire. He was surrounded by angels protecting him from the Syrian army. Uh, there's, uh, I think a little bit later in history, Israel is surrounded, Jerusalem is surrounded by uh, the army of the Assyrian Empire, at the time the greatest empire in the world. And there was an army of 180,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. And they as I understood it, didn't have enough people to, to uh, mount one company of horsemen against this army. And they cry out to God, and God sends an angel. And the angel destroys that entire army and gives Israel victory. 
Okay, there's lots of other examples. Uh, angels appear to save Daniel out of the mouth of lions. And this starts maybe getting close to home with the uh, believers being persecuted under the Roman Empire. It could be that some of them were being thrown to the lions. And they were like, God, won't you send an angel to save us too? Uh, an angel came and, and uh, protected uh, Daniel's friends from the fire. Remember, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And an angel comes, and literally with them, there in the, uh, in the uh, fiery furnace and protects them from the flame of the fire. Christians were, were lighting, sorry, Romans were, were putting Christians on fire at the time. You know, God, won't you send an angel to preserve us through this? So what, what I'm bringing here is these people, the Hebrews, were very much in need of encouragement, right? They were, they were suffering. They were being persecuted. And maybe they were starting to think of angels, right? Would, would God send an angels to help us in our trouble? Now, angels are good. Thinking of angels is good. But looking to angels is not good because we have someone greater to look to. And that's what I think the author is doing in this passage as he will be comparing angels to Christ again and again. He's showing the greatness of Christ. We have someone even better to look to than angels to encourage us in our Christian life. Okay. Um, with that, we'll look at the first comparison here. I'm sorry, I have my notes out of order. But uh, verse 5 he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So the first way in which Christ is shown to be greater than the angels is his relationship to God. What is Christ's relationship to God? He is the Son of God. Now, we talked about it last time. What we mean by that is that He is God. Right? We, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to appreciate the relationship within the Godhead. There is, there is one God, and yet there are three persons that are God. Jesus is the second person in the Godhead, being the Son of God. But His relationship to God is that He is the Son of God. What's the angel's relationship to God? They worship Him. But when he again brings the, the firstborn into the world, that's Jesus, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Worship who? Worship Jesus. Why? Because he is God. Right? No one else should be worshipped. And angels know that. Here's a good example for that. In uh, John, sorry, Revelation 19.10, uh, John, the apostle, has just been led through this series of visions of the end time, he was led by an angel, and after this last revelation, latest revelation in the book, which I believe was the, the um, marriage supper of the Lamb, where the believers are fin finally united to Christ, John can't take it anymore. He falls down and he worships the angel. And uh, the angel says, <clears throat> and I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angels now 
you should only worship one person, and that's God. Right? Now, turning to the other side of, of, of it, because we are connected to Christ, remember my analogy, uh, Jesus being the Son of God, we become the sons of God too. Right? This is, you know, maybe hard to imagine, but the scripture is very clear about that. Um, one passage for that is Galatians 4, 4, 6. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, God, uh, the only begotten Son of God. He's the only one who always was the Son of God, always is. We used to not be the sons of God. In fact, we were sons of the devil, according to the scripture, because we were followers of the devil. But we've now been adopted into the household of God. It's as if you know, Christ is now attached to us, you know, comes to sit at the meal at the house, you know, with his father. And here we are, we're now attached to Christ, and he says, you're also welcome, right? You're also welcome. You're now part of, welcome to the family. <laughs> you're attached to my son, you're now attached to me. You know, he's my son, you are my sons also, right? He accepts us by adoption. Now, I think it's hard for us to appreciate how wonderful it is to be the sons of God. Um, I was recently reading a book, and in that book, there's this lady who's trying to help uh, homeless kids in New York City. And uh, so she would literally go around looking for homeless children and try to bring them into some sort of a home that she had to take care of their needs, which is a wonderful ministry. And she came across this teenager, and uh, she said, you know, very skinny, looked like a scarecrow. And... Uh, she tries to find out, first you try to assess the situation, what's going on here, and he says, uh, you know, my, my dad is coming for me. I'm, I'm waiting for my dad to come. And, uh, but I'm really hungry, do you have any food for me? And she at first thought he may be on drugs because he seemed a little bit spacey, but then she found he wasn't. He was mentally disabled. And uh, best as she could tell, his father, took him out to that spot, bought him breakfast, and said, stay here, I'm coming back. And his father never, never came back for his son. My father is coming back. His father was never coming back for him. And uh, we're shocked by that because we know what a father ought to be like, right? A father ought never to leave his child. No matter what's wrong with his child. Yes, maybe his child has mental disability, but a father's love is unconditional, right? It doesn't matter what my son does. I'm always his father. I always love him. And it doesn't matter if I have to care for him for the rest of my life, right? I'll take care, I'll take care of him for the rest of my life, even if he is disabled. Now, God is the perfect father, right? Jesus says this, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus recognizes that we're evil, right? We're not perfect father. I'm not a perfect father to my child. Clearly, that the man in the story is not a perfect father to his son. But there is a perfect father from which all fathers, in a sense, draw their likeness. If, we are a, if we're being good fathers to our children, men, then, then we're illustrating what the true Father in heaven is like. And we have been brought into his family. And he loves us unconditionally as his children. And there is no limit to what he will do for us because we are his children. Right? That is the relationship we have entered through Christ, being adopted into the household of God. The next comparison we have to the angels is in uh, verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. So there's actually two things here. I read them together because there was just one quote for the angels and then uh, two for Christ. But there's really two things here. First, we have his relationship to the universe. Right? The angels came first. In this case, it says that, that the angels and the ministers, in verse 7, uh, angels literally is the Hebrew word or the Greek word in this case uh, for messengers. What's the relationship of angels to the universe? Well, they're messengers, right? God sends them. They come to the world with messengers. They're ministers. They also serve, right? Like we saw in the case of Elisha, they surrounded him and protected him. We don't, we don't see angels, which is one of the things alluded to in this verse, but, uh, but they're around us and they serve God. They serve the universe. That's the relationship to the universe. What is Christ to the universe? Well, he is the king, right? Your throne, O God. Another reference to Jesus being God, by the way. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness. Scepter is what kings have by which they rule. It shows their authority. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, uh, Gary shared some of this during the breaking of bread, how, how Jesus is really different as a ruler than other rulers that this universe has ever seen. Uh, there is a sense in which God gave authority over this universe to Adam. When God created Adam, right, he said, you know, rule over all these things. Here's my creation. You are in charge. Now, Adam went ahead and he gave that authority to Satan. That's why Satan is called the ruler of this world. When Adam chose to follow Satan, and, and eat of the forbidden uh, fruit. 
And throughout history, you've had various kings, people who have risen to authority. This country has our own version, we call them president, but they're the ones that have authority. And yet, the way they attain that authority may not be righteous, right? A lot of time, kings become kings because they just defeat and kill all their opponents, and you better obey them or else, right? And they don't often exercise righteousness, right? I mean, they serve their own purposes. Sometimes, some kings are better than others. Some presidents may be better than others. But generally speaking, the, the reign is not characterized by righteousness. Jesus is different. In, in two ways. First of all, he is the rightful king. He has the right authority from God to reign. God gives him his power. Right? He doesn't take it on his own. Definitely not by bullying other people. The other is his reign will actually be righteous. Right? When he rules over this universe, we will see righteousness like we've never seen it before. Right? That's his relationship to the universe. He is the king. Right? The universe ought to obey his commands. Now, we're thinking about this, you know, you're attached at the hip. You're trusting in him for salvation. You, you want him to be seaworthy. Is that pretty seaworthy, being the king of the universe? Can you trust in him <laughs> to save you? Right? Now, as we, as we talk about being attached, well, what, how is that plays out, our identification with Christ as him being ruler? Well, we're also made rulers. You know, this, this you know, may catch you by surprise if you're not familiar with it. But the scripture says we will actually rule the universe with him. It says this in Revelation uh, 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Reigned is another word for rule. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in this first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So we will be ruling over this universe together with Christ. Right? Now we understand there's a certain you know, structure of authority, right? He's still ultimately the one in charge, but he gives us authority with him. It's interesting in the parables, Jesus is, is using a parable to describe those who are faithful to him in this lifetime Right, who, who use the things he gives them faithfully, the talents. What's the reward, do you remember? He says, you were faithful, rule over ten cities. Rule over five cities. That's his reward to us. You know, and, and the wonderful thing is we will be righteous, <laughs> like he is. Right? It's also interesting, it uses the word joy. Right? It said, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It's going to be the happiest time this universe has ever seen, right? When Jesus is on the throne, and we get to partake in that, right? We get to be part of that. Then the second half I mentioned here is, uh, it talks in verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works, work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. I think this is talking about Jesus' relationship to time 
to time. We have um, the angels' relationship. Well, it says who makes his angels spirits and his, and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, we're not saying that angels don't last forever. They last forever, as far as we understand. But their interaction with the universe is, um, I don't know what the best word would be, uh, seems to be uh, kind of in and out. In and out, right? They show up and then they disappear. And uh, the word spirits may suggest that in Hebrew it's wind. The word, the word spirits would, is the same as the word wind. A flame of fire flickers on and off, flickers on and off. So they're, they're kind of, their interaction with the universe is unpredictable, you could say. And now God knows what he's doing with them. But from our point of view, angels come and go. But, so that's, that's their relationship with time. They're not very steady, at least as far as interaction with us. Jesus is described here as the creator of the universe. Again, another indication Jesus must be God. But it stresses the fact that he doesn't change. They will perish. It's talking about creation. This, you know, the trees, the mountains, the stars will perish. Hard to imagine. You know, what's the lifetime of a mountain? They will perish. But you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. We know that's true. In this universe, time operates with age. Things age in this universe. Right? Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. God will take this earth and this heaven and he will change it. This is going to be the old. I mean, it is old. The old earth and the old heaven. He has a new earth and a new heaven. But you are the same. He doesn't change. Why? Because he is outside of creation. Right? Time has no bearing whatsoever on the Lord Jesus. He created time. Right? It's one of the things that Einstein taught us. You know, space-time continuum. There's another dimension to this universe. It's time. But he's outside of time. He doesn't change with time. What a person to hang your eternity on, huh? Right? Somebody who doesn't change with time. And... Uh, as to our connection with it, our identification with him, well, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? We will live forever because he lives forever. You see, we're attached at the hip with Christ. So just as he is, will be there forever, we will be there forever too. Our eternal life is grounded in him. Just as Christ will be there for all of eternity, so shall we. Because of his salvation. Right? Because he attached us to himself. Okay. The last comparison we have is in verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now, the last comparison, I, would, I, I was trying to find the right word for it. I would say his relationship to the working of God, or you could say his relationship to the plan and purpose of God. Uh, because God says to him, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It means Jesus is right now sitting and he's waiting. Right? He's sitting and he's waiting for what? 
for his enemies to be made his footstool, meaning for creation to become subject to him. Right now we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. Psalm 2 does a good description of it. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's what the world wants, right? It wants to cast off God. The world is in rebellion against God. Well, God has other plans for this world. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God has a plan for this universe, and that plan is Jesus. And that's not going to go away. Again, what a person to connect yourself with. The person who is God's plan for the universe. And the Amazing thing is, of course, if we connect it to the person who's God's plan for the universe, guess what? We are God's plan for the universe, or part of God's plan through him. We have that for us in Romans chapter 8, beautiful passage. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And that's you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. God is working all things in this universe for your good. You are on his mind. To those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, all of a sudden we see we're part of God's purpose. Right? This is not accidental. For whom he foreknew, he says God foreknew us beforehand. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is all part of God's plan from eternity past that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, now you see, it's because we're connected to Christ. Christ is God's plan for the universe, and we're connected to him. We're part of God's plan for the universe, too. It comes because of our connection with him. Now, don't don't ask me which comes first, the chicken or the egg, because I can't (laughs) answer those questions. The rooster, okay, now we know. But... uh, I mean, clearly we are God's, in God's plan for the universe. God had us from the beginning. He had a certain plan for the universe. That plan was Jesus. And now it says he wants Jesus to be the firstborn of many brethren. Uh, Rick, Rick Abella said it to me once, as explaining this verse, is God is so delighted with his son that he could think of nothing better than populate the universe with people just like him. And praise God, that's going to be you and me. People just like Jesus, right, populating this universe. The new earth and the new heaven. Application. Well, first of all, are you encouraged? You know, we we all have trials, right? We all have, you know, something or other wrong with us. (laughs) Jesus promised it would be the case. And, uh, you know, think about who you are connected to. This is something that I have to exercise daily, right? I can't set my mind on Jesus on Sunday at 11 o'clock. 
and expect that to carry me through the rest of the week, right? It has to be something we do daily. In fact, probably more than just daily, right? We have to refocus on him. Here's a good passage to memorize if you're into memorizing scripture, thinking about our connection with Jesus. He says, and uh, this is kind of continuing where we were at. Like I said, it's a great passage in Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If we think about all this thing, you know, Christ has saved us. He attached us to himself. He is the son of God. Uh, he is uh, the king of the universe. He is the timeless creator of the universe. He is God's plan for the universe. And you are connected to him in an unbreakable bond. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This bond we have with him, what can break it? Shall tribulation? The believers, the Hebrews, people who this letter was written to, they were going through tribulation. Yeah, we're going through a hard time. Is this going to break my bond with God? This trouble that has come upon me. Or distress. Or persecution. Or famine. Or nakedness. Or peril. Or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's what the world does to us. It kills us. Right? Now, you know, we happen to live a particular place, particular period of time where we're not seeing Christians persecuted and killed on this level. But it's still happening around the world. Christians are being persecuted. It may happen again in our lifetime. Persecution could be coming here. Don't think that you are safe from it. It may come. And that was really the experiences, experience for them. They were being killed. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Does the fact I'm persecuted, does that separate me from Jesus? Does it stop me from being the son of God? God being my perfect father? It doesn't. How about, will it break my connection to the king of the universe? Will it stop me from reigning over this universe? I will reign over this universe through Christ. Whatever people do to me will not change that. You know, I will live forever with him, the creator who is outside of time. And uh, God will fulfill his purpose with me, which means I will be one day just like Jesus. Doesn't matter what people do to me, they can't take that away from me. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from him. Now, if you have not yet caught that life preserver that the Lord is throwing out, it's available to all, right? Everyone here should be able to walk out of that door saying, I am in Christ. I am safe in Christ. I have caught the life preserver he sent me. He is holding the other side. I cannot be disconnected. I am forever his. If you haven't taken that offer, why not do so now? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. It's amazing to think that we can call you Father. We know that we do not deserve that title, and yet you grant us freely to us through Christ. Him being the begotten Son of God allows us to be adopted into the family of God and to call you Father. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. We recognize that we all have tribulation in our life. This is what your Son told us will happen, and we've all experienced it. And we need this encouragement, Lord. We recognize that our, our, our encouragement does come through your Son, who he is and what he has done for us. And we pray that you help us set our mind on him and experience that peace he wants us to have and the victory here on earth he wants us to have. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.